All right, Tom Ingeborg has a question for you next, please. Yes, it's only a very short question, but, you know, it fits perfectly at the moment. Um, you talked about the uh, process of growth. Uh, have you ever been fed up with the process? You know, I, you know I, I'm bored or I don't like anymore. It's an endless process of growth. Uh, have you ever been... You know, at a point where you said, I don't want to anymore, because it's a little bit the, 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 the situation I'm now in at the moment. I, you know, I'm, I'm fed up. <laughs> yeah. No, I've never actually been to the place where I'm fed up with it. Um, never had that feeling. I think what happens when you get that feeling is that you're anticipating something else you're anticipating the growth path that you're going to be on you're anticipating the things that you will now understand the things you will be able to do the places you can go the people you'll meet and so on and when that doesn't materialize you can feel a little disappointed with the process is not really you know producing what you hoped it would produce or giving you what you hope it would give you and of course that's ego that's just your ego you know it's your expectation it's a belief That's why a belief in enlightenment is a problem. If you believe you're going to get to this end state and then you just keep working and working and working and you don't ever seem to get there, you're going to get discouraged. But if you know that it's just a path that you're going to be cranking on, you know, you, you'll get there as you, you know, work toward it and it's just an ongoing thing. Well, then there's no discouragement. You know, there is, there is nothing to be discouraged about. You have no expectations. So in a way, the, the concept of, of, destination creates discouragement in that uh, the destination never comes quite as easily or quickly as you you know would hope for so i think that's probably it and it's not a bad idea sometimes to just take a break you know this this process of growing up doesn't happen full court press all the time you know from birth to death you're not full court press in this you know struggle to grow up There's downtime too. Sometimes you got to just take a break. Sometimes you'll meditate three times a day for maybe several years, get a lot out of it, and then you may go through a spell where you don't meditate at all. And you may go another year or two without ever, you know, uh, meditating or being connected to, you know, the larger system or anything else. You just Basically, what you're doing in those periods is that you're assimilating, you're collecting, you're, you're pulling together all of the stuff you've learned and turning it from intellect into the being level. You're working it. You're living it. You're being it rather than thinking about it and analyzing it and you know, pursuing it. Sometimes you just have to let go of all of that and just be it. And in those times, you may feel like you're not making any progress. Well, It's not true. You are making progress. You're internalizing things. You are acting in ways that represent you at the being level. You're being authentic. So there are periods when you're not really actively working on it, but you're really working on it at the same time because it's a time to gather information. And that's when you're meditating and you're doing things and you're pursuing the, you know, your growth. It's a gathering of information, gathering of ideas, gathering of concepts and intents. And then there's the time to take all that stuff you gathered and put it, put it to use, live it, be it. And in that time, maybe you're not gathering at all. You've let all that go. Well, don't feel like you're wasting your time and not making progress. You're just in another phase. So this growing up has lots of phases in it. Some of them are very active. Some of them are passive. Some of them you feel like you're backsliding. But you're not really. You're, you're beginning to see yourself the way you are. You're, you're beginning to see yourself as authentic. Maybe in your mind you built yourself up with a halo and that you were almost there, you know, just a few more things and enlightenment would be yours. And then you let it all go. And then after a while you say, well, you know, I'm not even all that nice anymore. You know, I just did this and I do that. I'm really degenerated. But no, what you've done is you've become more authentic. Instead of having these ideas being driven out of your intellect about how much progress you're making, now you're being who you really are. All right, authenticity is the first step in growing up. 
you got to be who you are. And you don't know who you are as long as your mind is constantly telling you who you think you ought to be, which is what you're doing when you're doing this growth, you know, pursuit of growth. You're the seeker. You're trying to be what you think you should be. Well, that's good, but you have to take periods where you aren't the seeker. You're the experiencer. You're the beer. You just are. And find authenticity and then work with that. But if you don't have expectations, you won't be disappointed. You'll say, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, okay, this is the way I am. Now I need, I have all these all these experiences and insight now. Let me put those to use. Let me work with this instead of getting upset with yourself and you know, kind of want to throw it all away because it's not working. So it's just an attitudinal thing. And you have to keep your ego from getting tied to expectations, which then will usually expectations lead to disappointment. So you need to let all that go and figure you're just working this thing. And sometimes you're active with it. Sometimes you're seeking and sometimes you're just being your it's application time rather than new idea time. And that's all right. That's good. It's part of it. All right, Tom, uh, Pally has a question on balancing intellect and intuition. Would you like to ask your own question, Polly? Thank you. You can ask the question, Donna. Okay, I will do that. Uh, <clears throat> some people are good at analyzing, describing, and categorizing things in life based on which they try to make their decisions. Others seem to be good at intuitively assessing the situation without too much thinking and subsequently acting based on their gut feeling. Do you think that we should develop our intuition if we have a generally intellectual approach to life and conversely to develop our intellect if we are generally intuitive in life? Absolutely. You need to have both. You need to have a, a capacity and ability and a facility to be analytical, to make good choices, to see alternatives, to imagine if I take this path, if I make this choice, what are the ramifications of that choice? And if I make this other choice, what are the ramifications of that? Where does it lead? How does it affect other people? Um, all these things take place in your intellect, you see. And when you ask those questions of the intellect, the way you get the answer then is with your intuition because the intellect doesn't have the, the data required to analytically come to those conclusions. But the intellect asks the question. You see, now the intuition has to intuit the answer to those questions. But the intuition doesn't ask the question. The intellect asks the question. So you need both of those. You need to be left brain and right brain, both. You need to be whole brained. You need to be intuitive, but not to the extent that you no longer can think rationally. And you need to think rationally, but not to the extent that you live your life out of your head and you have no bigger picture, no bigger sense of the way things work and how you affect others. So it takes both of those things working together. And eventually what happens is you end up in a, in a space where you operate entirely out of the being level. You're thinking, you're analyzing, your assessments, your questions still come out of the being level. You are just you at the being level. The whole core of you is now um, part of you. You don't have a uh, you don't have a hidden part of your being. You know you don't have the subconscious mind that kind of jumps out and bites you now and again, makes you angry, and you're not sure why. Um, you're you're whole. You're a whole person, and you think right out of the core of your being. You analyze out of the core of your being. Your intuition comes right out of the core of your being, and you're a whole person. Okay, you have to get rid of the fear before you get to that point. But that's kind of where you're going to where the, the thinking part and the intuition part are really all part of the same thing. They're not two different parts. They're, they're just you know, different aspects of the one you. you know, when you tend to be, particularly in the Western world where we're very uh, left brain and everything kind of works out of the intellect, it tends to seem like there's two parts of you. There's this intellectual part and then there's in, this intuitive part. And if your intellectual part is the dominant part, then you may not even think you have an intuitive part. You may think intuition is nonsense. There is no such thing as intuition. 
And if there was, how could you ever depend on it? Because it's not objective. It's all subjective. Therefore, not dependable. You say, well, that's the way people are when they live out of their head. If, if they're the opposite of that, they intuit their way through life, but they don't understand anything in the sense that they understand deeper meanings and bigger pictures, but they don't understand how to communicate, how to help other people, how to um, optimize you know, their situations so that they can be more helpful, so that they can grow more because they just intuit rather than, than uh, think rationally or logically. It takes both, Polly, and, and uh, both are important. You can't really function well in this reality unless you can do both of those things and do them simultaneously, not, well, I'll go up and do this part, and then I'll go do that part, and the two things are separate, and then I'll try to, I'll try to you know, smash them together and see what comes out of it. But it needs to all just be one part where the intellect and the intuition are all uh, integrated with each other. So your intuition has a thinking part, and your intellect has an intuitive part, you see. It's all uh, all one thing. I know it's a little hard to, to maybe get a sense of that, but it's not an intellect and intuitive part that are separate. They're just integrated into one thing, and your intellect and your intuition work for you on all your problems, and they work hand-in-hand hand simultaneously all the time. Thank you very much, Tom. That really makes sense to me. And I know that you spoke about yourself as being whole-brained in the past. And um, uh, this question came to me when I was speaking to a friend of mine who, who told me that uh, I shouldn't be forcing my girlfriend to speak about her feelings and uh, to force her to, let's say, act out of her character because she's more intuitive as a woman, uh, naturally. And it's uh, hard for her sometimes to find the right words to uh, describe what is happening in her. And my opinion was exactly as you described, that actually I think we, ha we are helping each other because she helps me uh, become more intuitive, more in touch with my feelings because I really care about her and I need to know um, what she feels if I want to act in a, well, pro in a good way uh, with her. So that makes sense to me. Thank you. All right, Tom, our next question is from Alec on the MBT forum. Uh, in 2016 Fireside Chat Part 2, Tom mentioned that information must be maintained. Otherwise, it dissipates due to a tendency for entropy of an information system to increase if left unattended. It then follows that the historical database would erode if there was no one investing energy in, into maintaining it. Is this so? Is the database pruned periodically to have the oldest entries that are unlikely to ever be queried for disappear? If so, then when a query for those pruned entries does get received, I would think the result would be computed on the fly from probabilities, similar to what happens in real time, and would then be stored in the database again, because if it is not stored in the database and gets recomputed each time for repeated queries that are exactly the same, it would be hard to ensure the result is exactly repeatable. Is this so? Yes. Um, uh, you said this was from Alec? Yes. I think, I think Alec has a pretty good grip of it. That's, that's pretty much the way it does work, yes. Uh, there's no need to keep data that is not any longer useful. So you get past the point where the information is valuable. And I suspect that point's pretty far off. I suspect it keeps a lot of information that doesn't get queried very often or has a low probability of being queried. But eventually, uh, there's just no point in keeping particularly some of the details, some of the personal details um, that are, what, a thousand years old? Details of... The fact that there was an orange vase with green flowers in it sitting on the refrigerator, you know, in so-and-so's house. Well, that's a thousand years ago, and nobody really is going to care about that. And if they do look at that village in that time a thousand years ago, yes, they will just get a probability which will have a vase of some color with some kind of flowers in it sitting there maybe, or maybe not. So it doesn't really matter that much. So details that are not useful there's no point in keeping them forever, right? We do that with our own computers. We occasionally, or at least we should, go, 
go through our computers and kind of prune out the stuff that we're no longer going to use. Old stuff that's now judged to have a low or zero probability that we'll ever need to look at it again. We can use those bits for something else. So I imagine the system works exactly the same way. And uh, if it, if then somebody else comes and, and looks at that um, and they are totally independent, they may get a different vase color with different colored flowers in it. It really wouldn't matter. Now, if the two people were in doing research together about what that place was like, then the system would probably be aware of that and give them both the same vase with the same color flowers in it because then that would make a difference. You see, it would, it would be a, a problem not to do that. So the system's pretty good about keeping up with what we're doing, what we're asking, why we're asking it, and the information that we need to help us understand and grow. And it's pretty good at giving us that. But once that information has a very, very small potential for helping anybody grow, do anything useful, then there's no point in keeping it around. You might as well use those bits for more current information. So that way the database doesn't just grow and grow and grow, you know, and, and uh, it's kind of never, uh, um, if it never deletes anything, then there's this problem of a database that only accumulates and never, never prunes. That wouldn't be good computer science. Good computer science says you get rid of the bits that are not useful. All right, Tom. So we'll never know what Guinevere's crown looked like or anything like that. <laughs> All right. We'll have to take that disappointment. Um, another question from an MBT forum user um, is on out-of-body experience and psi activities breaking the rule set. With regards to purposely invoked out-of-body experience and or psi activities that can be undertaken within the psi uncertainty principle constraints, are we breaking, hacking, bending the rule set? And is such an experience of bending the rule set a part of a free will awareness evolution realization? Okay, yes. When we do things, um, remote view or out-of-body depending on what we're doing on the outer body. When, when we're doing these things, these are things that fall under the paranormal category, which means we don't have a normal explanation for them. That basically means they don't have a material explanation for them, and therefore they become paranormal. Well, you know, it just occurred to me, under that definition of paranormal, the double slit experiment is paranormal. So, uh, because we don't have a materialist rational explanation for the double slit experiment. Therefore, that's a paranormal science, you see. In any case, uh, yes, we are meant to explore. We're meant to grow up. And part of this growing process is seeing bigger pictures. And if it helps us to see a bigger picture by doing some of these paranormal things, then that's you know what we should do. Now, we don't have to do that. We can see bigger pictures without ever doing anything paranormal. Paranormal uh, experiences are not necessary to grow up. We can grow up and become love without ever remote viewing. Remote viewing doesn't turn us into love. Neither does out of body. They're just another set of experiences, like the dream experiences that we have are another set of experiences, which gives us another set of choices by which we can grow up. So it, it expands your choice set a bit if you uh, explore these other realities, but it isn't necessary to growing up. But yes, it does help give us a bigger picture, and we are not only uh, allowed to do it, we're often encouraged to do it. It's no problem. Yeah, it's not that we're violating, uh, you know, we're not hacking the system or if we want to call it with that metaphor hacking, then the hacks are intentionally there for us to use. You know, either way you want to see it. But yes, that's something we're, we're allowed to, and often, particularly with certain individuals, we're encouraged to, to do that. And as long as we realize that it is ours, it's our experience, then it can be very helpful to us. Where we go wrong as if we think that it should be everybody else's experience too, or that our experience is right and everybody else's experience is wrong. 
if we do, if we get to that, then we're just putting fear and ego and belief into the picture. And then that takes our experience and makes it something that's dysfunctional. You could do that with a dream. You can have a dream and then you can think that dream, you know, is really the way it is. And everybody who doesn't do it that way or end up in that space then is somehow inferior. But that's a foolish way to look at things. So we do these things and they're personal. They're for us. The information you get is for you. Sometimes it may be for you to share if sharing is going to help decrease entropy. But it's not, um, you know, it's not given to you for any other reason. Well, it's not always true, but it's mostly not thing. Things aren't given to you that are paranormal, except for the fact that they are to help you see bigger pictures, help you understand the larger reality, give you some experience in the larger consciousness system, as opposed to just in this physical reality. That's the main point. Not essential, but interesting. All right, Tom, another question from an MBT forum user is Sharma, from Sharma, on reincarnating into the same environment. I understand we come back into this physical matter reality as it is a familiar reality and where we can achieve the most growth because of its familiarity. So in a similar vein, wouldn't it be logical to come back to the same country or even town place, or even family as someone else in the next packet. I can see plenty of growth opportunities everywhere being someone else now, here where I am, and I wonder if Tom knows or has any experience as far as this is concerned, as far as this is concerned. Soul groups that reincarnate together is something that has been popular amongst regression theorists therapists. So I do wonder, without knowing for certain, I'm sure our cat is our dog from years ago, and this kind of sparked my interest. Um, Remember that time moves on. Time is fundamental. Even though you may hear lots of things about time doesn't exist and time isn't fundamental and time is an illusion and so on, time is fundamental. So when you come back Um, If you come back into the same family, you come back at a later time, okay? If you're, you know, if you're 60 when you die and you go back into the same family, then perhaps that's your granddaughter, uh, you know, having her first child. You're coming back into the same family. But it's not like you can then incarnate and be back in that same time or at an earlier time. Time keeps moving on. Time's a fundamental thing. Okay, but other than that, yes, you can um, connect with specific groups because these groups have proven in the past to be very um, effective in helping you grow up. You know, sometimes teams that work together get really good at what they do, and the team can work much quicker, much faster, and more effectively just because they're a team and they have a lot of experience together. If they take half the team members out and put in new members, well, the team isn't as good as it used to be. Not because those new people aren't as good as the ones they replaced, but because they don't have the same familiarity. They're not as good at reading each other's thoughts and knowing uh, you know, uh, how to interact with each other. So, yes, there are things such as soul groups, but they're more in the margin than the rule. And you have to balance two things that are kind of pulling in opposite directions. Familiarity makes it easier for us to understand and connect and maybe work on some things because we're in a familiar uh, environment. But within that familiarity, we also need diversity. You need to play a lot of different roles. You need to be in a lot of different situations. That way you see things from different perspectives, and that helps give you a virtual reality. So your incarnations should have lots of newness to them, lots of variation. That's important for your growth. And they can have sameness because that gives you confidence and that makes the process easier because it's familiar. You don't want too much familiarity 
you probably don't want too much, uh, you know, newness all at once either, but it's a balance between those, those two things. So typically we come, we reincarnate as both male and female because we get two different perspectives that way. Sometimes we, we have multiple incarnations within one family. You may have a father, a son, and a grandson that are all part of the same individuated unit of consciousness. That individuated unit of consciousness has, has, uh, you know, uh, three free will awareness units all going at the same time. And the reason for that would be that you get to see yourself in the various roles, how you interact. And that would be very profitable if you were in a very dysfunctional relationship. Let's say you were very dysfunctional in your relationship with your father. And uh, you might then want to come back where you were both father and son so you could see both of those perspectives. You see, that would give you an opportunity to work out issues that you had because you only had one perspective. You got wadded up in that one perspective, got extreme, made a lot of bad choices, and now you can see it from the other side. Um, I think Donna brought up an example once of a, of a, of a uh, I think it was something that um, uh, Brian Weiss uh, wrote about in one of his books where a lady had three incarnations, all from the same individual unit of, of uh, consciousness. And it was during the uh, World War II era, and there was one that was on, you know, the Axis side, one that was on the Allies side, and one that was a victim somewhere in the middle of all of that. So they got three viewpoints of what was going on there all at once. And there's advantage in that. They could see that all the people on the opposite side, you know, the enemy, weren't all evil. There were some nice good people there because they were on that side. They could see that there were good people on the other side as well. And they could see that there were horrible things happening in the middle between the clash of the two sides. That kind of perspective may be necessary if you had gone, if you had had a perspective somewhere in some other, uh, some other situation where you only saw one side of it and therefore came out kind of unbalanced in your attitudes or with fears or other things where you didn't get the big picture. So that would be a way to help you get a big picture. So these are all special circumstances that are handcrafted individually, I should say custom crafted individually for a individuated unit of consciousness to help them optimize what it is they have to learn. And sometimes that takes cooperation with other people in a, in a group. And most of the time, it doesn't. It just takes you playing lots of roles, having lots of challenges, and uh, lots of diversity to help you see a bigger, more well-rounded picture. Yes, Tom, this question brought up a situation I encountered in Wales. Um, I met someone whom I suspected was his great-great-uncle. The circumstances are very detailed. Um, but I thought this person that I met in Wales about six years ago was his great-great-uncle. They were both in the same profession, which is in the music uh, in opera. And what unique lessons could you learn from being of one of your ancestors? What, what goes on with that situation? Well, if you just are doing a, like a, uh, understanding what other incarnations that you have. Okay. That'd be one of your ancestors. Um, well, let me, let me first understand what you were saying. If you have a, if you are looking at your past lives and you say, Oh, here's an ancestor of mine. You can maybe learn something from that perhaps, but mostly I don't think there's a whole lot to learn there. I think it's just more of a understanding that the big picture, seeing that the database exists for you to look up, you know, the kind of data on your ancestors in the database. And that helps you see a bigger picture of how reality works more than the fact that you're really going to get some kind of important information, you know, from your ancestor. So it's more of the total experience that's important than it is anything that happens within that, within that experience. Now you can't be an ancestor. In other words, you're not going to reincarnate into the past. Again, time moves on. So it's not like you're going to reincarnate into the 1700s and, 
and uh, take a character there. 1700s came and went, and that's just data in the database now. It's not a place that we can go. We keep moving on. Yes, this person This person was um, someone who was in the past, but this same being could also be in the present in the same in the same environment i found it interesting yeah yeah lots of lots of uh, unusual things can happen and patterns it's you know you it's figure there's I- there's lots of people and lots of situations and almost everything that can happen does happen at least some in the margins and it's hard to tell really what the specific reason the specific reason would have been for that individual to discover so that was some um, something different the next question comes on from the mbt forum user dave mars on the origins of fear assuming a smooth movement from a self-aware unity that fractions itself into a more or less self-aware subunits assume limitations uh, that assume limitations as a function of engagement in a virtual reality environment where does fear originate I'm assuming that AUM, this is the absolute unbounded manifold, does not have fear to begin with. Okay. okay. I think there's going to be a whole series of questions here, so let's just stop with that one. I assume that that, that, um, the larger conscious system doesn't have fear to begin with. Well, that would not necessarily be a good assumption. The larger consciousness system is not a perfect system. It's not the zero entropy system. It is also evolving. Okay, so it's a real system. It's not uh, omnipotent. It doesn't, uh, you know, it's not perfect. It's a real system. Now, if we compare it to ourselves, it looks pretty darn perfect. You know, but then that's us, you know, looking at that system. It seems like it's a infinite perfect system from our viewpoint, but it's not really. It uh, is also evolving and becoming and, and, uh, learning also now it's learning at a level of how can i make better virtual realities that help individuated units of consciousness grow better you know that sort of thing it's it's not learning about how to not get angry that's long time ago that passed but it's it's learning things about how to make the whole system work better function better uh, be more effective more efficient uh, that sort of thing so Anyway, uh, I wouldn't start with that assumption that the arm does not have any fear. I would say that fear is probably, if it does have fear, that fear is very, very minute compared to anything that we might imagine. And it wouldn't be a fear like we generally think of, you know, the arm's not worried about being, uh, you know, inadequate to the job and that sort of thing. It's not that level, that gross level of fear. Uh, It may be a level of, you know, when I uh, modified the uh, rule set, was that a good idea or not? You know, and you might not say that's fear, but, you know, you, you do uh, sometimes second guess. You're always skeptical of uh, what it is you're doing and whether what you did was uh, the best of all the choices. And then you set up plans about how you can discover whether what you did was the best of all the choices. So there's, there's concern and, and uh, not knowing all the answers is part of the system. The system doesn't know all the answers. All right, so we'll go on to the to the next part. All right. Um, is it a purposeful element of a virtual reality? It seems like the way I'm reading it that he believes that fear is just part of a virtual reality. Yeah, um, well, the, the idea, the question I heard at the beginning is where does the fear come from, right? Yeah. What is, uh, yeah, what is the... That was the end of his first sentence there. What is a, where does fear originate? Where does it uh, come from? Well, right. it's a combination of several things. And it, it really comes in many forms. But I think the best answer to that is that it's free will dealing with problems in its environment it's free will dealing with the real world under quotes you know real world let me go fingers up here you know quotes around real world whatever that real world is for you you know that may be some non-physical place to us that may be this 
physical matter reality, wherever you happen to be as an individual unit of consciousness, that's your real world. And you have to deal with that real world. And you make choices. And as you make choices that are dysfunctional, then you can you can begin to say, oh, I did that badly. And then, oh, I did it badly again. And then you may begin to develop some fear of not being able to do it right. I think it's a small thing that comes from bad choices. And it, it also comes out of the fact that when we individuate into individual pieces, now it's a me and everybody else. We have this duplicity now where it's we have this vision of us and not us. So here's me and everything else in this universe is not me. So I see myself as set aside, as different from, as not a part of everything else. That comes with making a whole bunch of pieces. As long as it was all just one monolithic thing, then it's all me. Then you make individual pieces, and it's me and everything that's not me. You see, it's a big difference in the viewpoint there. And when it's when you're interacting then without everything else that's not you, then there can be fear. There can be advantage taken. If you're not, you know, you have to learn to grow up. It's not like you're, you're created. It's not like all the individuated units of consciousness were created perfect. And then somehow they made bad decisions. They were created with potential, with potential to make choices when they had situations in their environment. They're me and everything not me. They made choices there. And those choices could be self-centered, self-focused choices. They could do that, or they could make different choices. So I think it was just a matter of how each entity interacted with this new thing of being in the, in the position of seeing itself as different from its environment and from other entities. How did it interact that way? It may have felt threatened by those other entities or bullied or other kinds of things. So it's just how it started making those choices of itself vis-a-vis others. That is where the fear develops. And after that, you know, if you, if you um, de-evolve, it makes it easier to de-evolve more. If you evolve, it makes it easier to evolve more. It's just, uh, it starts to, the patterns start to separate, bifurcate. Some people move toward negative states. Other people move toward positive states. Some of the negative ones turn around. Some of the positive ones turn around and go negative. You know, you've got this big free-for-all now of interaction going on. And then when you end up being put in a virtual reality like ours, where you have all of this interaction that's very personal and very much in your face that you don't have when you're just one member of a huge chat room. See, that's, you know, it's a little, it's a little hard to get too, uh, you know, too much ego worked up when you're just a member of a chat room. Well, you might not like what other somebody's saying and you might think that, well, what I think is more right than that, or I'm smarter than that person. You can get a little ego that way, but it's not at all like being here in this, this virtual reality where everything you do and think and say is just right there. You know I mean? It, it reflects you all the time. Your environment reflects you and you have these, these feedback in the fact that you can modify future probability with your intent. So you're pulling the, you're, you're pulling that, uh, that probability this way and other people are pulling that probability that way. And you see there's there's room for conflict. There's room for dissatisfaction, for ego, for all kinds of things to grow immensely once you get in this reality where you have this tight rule set. Now, it's not that suddenly the tight rule set makes you become fearful or makes you make bad choices. You had all that inside as your potential. You just didn't have a very effective way of actualizing that potential. You didn't have a effective way of expressing that potential in the big chat room. 
which is I, I use the big chat room as, a, as an analogy for the non-physical interactions that don't have a tight rule set, where it's really just communication between individuals. You see, you could be very self-centered in this big chat room and get along with everybody because you'd learn manners. So you'd be acting very polite. See, so you can have those kinds of things and never notice that you have it. You wouldn't expect that you were self-centered or that you were fearful about this or that. But the potential to be that way is there. Well, now suddenly you get into this virtual reality where the feedback is direct and sometimes very forceful. You're interacting with people who react not only to what you say, but to what you do, how you look. Uh, you know, the circumstances of the environment, there's all kinds of other things going on. And that just gives you an opportunity to express that self-centeredness or that love or whatever else you generated of, with your eons of being in the big chat room. Okay, so the eons of being in the big chat room preceded the virtual reality with a tight rule set. And when it did, Entities who felt they were pretty grown and just about had everything under control got into a place like this and found out they had very little under control. Again, it's like the guy who sits in the cave and, and meditates, you know, for a decade and feels very, very grown, but drop him on a city street with a lot of noise and people elbowing him in the ribs. And, uh, you know, he asks questions and people ignore him and, you know, he gets this and people step on him. He's got all this stuff going on now suddenly being in a big crowd and he feels claustrophobic and he needs to get out and all this fear goes over him you see and well it's different being in a big crowd of people than it is sitting in a cave all by yourself you can feel very enlightened in a cave all by yourself and realize there's all sorts of fears and things you've never dealt with because you've never had the opportunity to express yourself in those environments well that's what happened when a lot of individuated units of consciousness who had been eons in the chat room never uh, really connected with each other on this kind of, you know, tight rule set model. They got here and suddenly it's like the guy got out of his cave and got thrown, you know, in the middle of, um, you know, you name it, some, some bad, uh, you know, district in the inner city someplace. And uh, life suddenly was scary. There was a lot of things to be fearful about. Um, you know, there was a lot of competition now just to get food. You know, you didn't have competition for food when you're all non-physical, just chatting with each other. You see, you've got all sorts of things that, that, uh, uh, you have to deal with. And suddenly all the fear and the ego and the rest of the stuff that was there as potential, but never had a sense, a way to express itself, expressed itself. And these entities you know, had a very harsh awakening in that experience because they realized that who they were wasn't who they thought they were. They were out of the cave. They were out of the chat room into a place that was had all of this process going on that they had to interact with, and that was tough. And a lot of the fear blossomed there in the sense that it could get expressed. Now, it doesn't mean that that caused the fear. The fear was in them anyway as potential. It just needed a place to express. And if you'll note, while we're talking about this, almost every culture on this planet that's ever been that has a written history has a story of, you know, where they came from, how people got here. You know, and almost always the story is that you come from someplace else where it was nice and lovely and everybody got along and every, everything was good. And you got here and, you know, all hell broke loose. You know, things fell apart and it's been going downhill ever since. You know, that's kind of the, the idea. Some of the cultures might have them coming from the stars. Some of them may came, come from Atlantis. Some of them came from, you know, whatever. There's all sorts of stories about that. But it's that coming here story and about how things went to hell in a handbasket. You know, uh, Garden of Eden, right? Didn't work out. Everything was perfect and really, really nice. And then, oh, they got some bad information and bam, you know, everything uh, went bad after that. It's been bad ever since. Well, a lot of those stories have their roots in individuated units of consciousness coming 
and logging on to this virtual reality where they went from, you know, very competent and, uh, and confident members of a big chat room to having to deal with things like hunger and sex and uh, warfare and violence and big animals with, you know, with big teeth and other sorts of things that they never had to deal with before. And then a lot of what was in them got expressed that they didn't know that was in them. And now they had an awful lot to overcome that had always been in there as potential, but had never been expressed. Well, you see, the point is you have to overcome that. Just being in a cave and feeling enlightened isn't enough to really be enlightened. You see, you just think you're enlightened. Well, being in a big chat room isn't really enough to get rid of your ego and become love. You've just not been challenged yet. So that's what happened. This was the challenge place. So a lot of the fear blossomed when it got to the challenge of the of this kind of a tight rule set reality frame. But it wasn't created here. It was always in the individual. The guy sitting in a cave for decades, it's always in him, you know, to get panicked in a crowd, have claustrophobia. That's been part of him, but uh, just never got expressed when you're by yourself in a cave. So that's kind of the where fear comes from and how it, you know, how we here in this virtual reality seem to be so fearful because this brings everything out of us. Here we get to express every part of us down to the core. There isn't anything that's, that's not kind of jerked out. All of our buttons are exposed to be pushed here. And that's why this is such a good laboratory for learning. If we all went and sat in a cave, probably 80% of our buttons would disappear because there wouldn't be any way that they'd ever get pushed. There'd be nothing to push them, nothing to excite us, nothing to challenge us, nothing to threaten us. But when you're here, when you're out in this world, you log on to this virtual reality, there's all kinds of things that will threaten you. And uh, you could meet them fearlessly just because you were that grown. But how could you get that grown if you never had an opportunity to, you know, to express that, to uh, to be in that situation. So these folks found themselves not very grown at all. A big, uh, uh, a big, big uh, change in the way they saw themselves. And that's where a lot of those stories come from. That was a, a, a massive migration of the people in the non-physical to experience the physical, quote-unquote, world in this virtual reality trainer. That's why we needed the trainer because in a big chat room, you just don't grow up very fast because there's just not a lot to push your buttons, to challenge you, to see what you really are. How do you react? So that's, uh, that's where fear came from. It was in us from the beginning. It's part of us. We needed to overcome it. We just had potential when we were created. We had a potential to evolve, potential to de-evolve. And that was slow going until we got to this place. And that's why these virtual realities are just so valuable because now we can work on ourselves at a very deep level, not just out of the intellect, but at a much deeper, much more uh, complete level. Tom, do you think self-expression is important here? Do you think... um Everything that you are should be expressed, or do we rein ourselves in? Well, that's a good question, and uh, I think uh, we've talked about this before, but it's a really good good thing to talk about because the first step to growing up is becoming authentic. Becoming authentic means being yourself. You see, until you own you, until you, you take ownership of yourself, how are you going to change yourself? If you don't own yourself, you can't change yourself, you see. You have to take ownership. You have to say, yes, this is me. Okay, here are the good parts and here are the ugly parts, but it's me. I own all that. Now you can start to work on those ugly parts to see if you can't pretty them up some. See if you can't outgrow them, overcome them, meet that challenge. But you won't even see them as ugly parts that need to be changed until you become authentic. Because until you become authentic, you'll say, 
Yeah, well, I'm not really an angry person. It's just these people. They they irritate me. They're all I'm just around all these awful people all the time. That's it. It's not me. It's them. You see, it's not until you become authentic that you realize that you choose to be angry, and that it is you. So authenticity is where you start, but it's not like um, you know. You can say that you. I, you know, I say that you have to own it. You have to accept it. But when you say accept it, it doesn't mean you say, okay, they're the ugly parts. I accept them. I'll just be ugly like that because that's the way I am. That's not the point. It's when you see those parts, own them, and then see what you can do to outgrow them. See, that's the idea. So, yes, becoming authentic, expressing yourself, being you is important. Now, it doesn't mean you have to act everything out. You know, if what you are is, is murderously angry, it doesn't mean you have to go murder somebody. It just means you have to recognize, you have to be authentic, that you recognize these feelings in yourself. And it's a part of you. You recognize all your fears. You say, oh, yeah, here are these fears. I see. That's why I act like this. That's what makes me upset. That's why I cry when such and such a things happen. There's all these fears and expectations and beliefs I have. Well, you got to own all that. And then you can deal with it. So it's both. Both are there. It's helpful to, um, it's more civilizing to act nice, but you can't grow up acting nice. You have to be nice. But before you can make changes, you have to own yourself, you see. So then you have to be yourself. Well, we'll try to do that with some constraints so we don't wreak havoc on other people. But you have to, you have to know who you are at the deepest level before you can grow. All right, Tom, the next question comes from Linda S. um, on healing. When I was working on healing someone, instead of going through all the steps of trying to find the illness and curing it in the physical way, can you just meditate on plucking that data out of the data stream? My little dachshund had bladder stones. I worked on her the other way first, which is curing, trying to find a... A physical way to cure it and had no success and I just started meditating on removing the bladder stones from the data stream right now she's acting completely normal yes so- and yeah the answer to that is of course you can do it that way matter of fact the second way is more efficient all of those processes of healing like the first thing we do is right we we try to diagnose and we bring up a picture, or not really a picture, but a, kind of an outline of the individual. And we say, I'd like to see everything that's, uh, that's non- not healthy as dark. And the more unhealthy it is, the darker it is. And the stuff that's healthy I want to see is white. So now we see the dark spots that are in the humanoid pattern. And we say, oh, there's the problem. And then we work to get rid of those dark spots. That's the process she's, ta- she's talking about in the beginning, you know, the going through all the steps of the process of of healing none of that's necessary all of that is just tools they're tools to help you focus your intent on modifying the future probability of that illness most people need tools if they don't have a process to do see do is the key word here if they don't have a process to do then they don't feel like they can accomplish anything because unless you do nothing happens so process kind of comes natural to people and it helps them focus but eventually you can let the tools go you don't need those tools you realize that that uh, they are just focusing aids and now you learn to focus without the aids and then you can just toss all the tools out they're not necessary so yes then you can just meditate go right to the point solve the problem without any of the tools if you can do that that's an easier way to do it people have trouble with that it's too easy. And if it's too easy, then you can't believe it could possibly work. And if you believe that it couldn't possibly work, it won't. Because your intent will be will not be strong. Because it's not something that, uh, you know, it's not coming from the bean level. The bean level says, nah, it's not going to work. It's too easy. So we need the tools, most of us. But uh, uh, I take it this was uh, Linda saying, uh, Linda, when you... Don't need the tool. Don't be afraid to let them go. As the tools get in your way and just cause an unnecessary process, then toss them out and either make different tools that are the, your own tools 
a more a more um, efficient set of tools where instead of going through all of that process, you only go through a little bit of process. Well, that's making your own tools or skip the tools altogether and go to the end. Just whatever works for you. Just use your own. All right, Tom, another MBT forum question. Um, receiving love. It appears to me that Love is a vital component that conscious beings need in order to thrive. When children grow up in an environment where they do not receive much love, it often results in emotional and spiritual damage that these folks carry with them throughout their lives, which leads me to believe that love must be some kind of an emotional nourishment that we conscious beings must have if we're to thrive spiritually and not just survive and suffer from its lack. You talk almost exclusively about love from the perspective of the giver, but I don't think I've heard you talk about love from the perspective of the receiver. So from your perspective, why is love so important to the receiver? What specifically does love do for the consciousness of the receiver? How does it nourish their soul? What specifically happens to a consciousness that is not given much love or can accept that love is given to it? Okay. What the receiver gets from being loved And love here I'm talking about is unconditional love. It's the only kind of love there is. If it's conditional, it's not love. It's a bargain. It's a deal. (laughs) The conditions make the deal. So love is always unconditional. A person who receives unconditional love gets the gift of security, gets the gift of acceptance, gets the gift that there are no conditions. They can just be authentic. They can be whoever they are, And the love is there. In other words, it's complete acceptance because it's unconditional. So what it does is gives them a safe place, a place that they can not only be authentic, but a place where they can see the issues that they have, to see the negative things they have. Otherwise, they're tempted to ignore or deny those issues. The fears are often denied. We don't know all the fears that we have. We push them under the rug, out of sight. Well, when you have this safe place where you know you're loved, you're liked, you're cared for, and that's unconditional, it'll always be there, then you can be whoever you are. You can take chances. You can take risks. You can bring up a fear and try to deal with it. Because if it makes you crazy for a little while, that'll be all right. There's this person here who cares about you unconditionally. It'll be fine. You see, they'll help you. They won't, they won't run away from you. They do. Then it wasn't unconditional love to begin with. So that's what love gives the receiver. It puts the receiver in a place where it's much easier for them to grow up. It makes an optimal environment for them to evolve in. There's no need to be fearful when you're basking in, you know, unconditional love. What could you be afraid of? That love's there without conditions. See, there's no point for the fear. So if we live in an environment and not just, uh, you know, if we lived in a, in a larger environment where all the people in this environment all loved each other unconditionally, just think what a safe environment that would be, how easy it would be for you to get to the bottom of your fears and deal with them and root them out and be whoever you are and learn from that. That whole process would be easy because you'd be surrounded by people who would support you in that process and people who would love you and, and help you no matter where that process took you. You see, there's no conditions. So it's a, it's a matter of safety and security and support is what love gives the, you know, the one that's receiving that love. And that's how we get to help somebody else. If you, you know, you've heard me often say, you can only grow yourself. You can't make anybody else grow up. You can only grow yourself up. So if there's somebody else has a problem, well, they have to outgrow that problem on their own. You can't outgrow it for them. But what you can do for them is give them an environment of security and safety in which they can feel more free and more empowered to grow themselves up. So that's 
that's really the optimum thing that you can do for someone to help them grow is love them and let them know it's unconditional. So that's the environment. If you're in an environment, let's say in a, in a uh, couple's relationship, you know, and you know, you want to help the other member of this couple evolve, love them unconditionally, give to them unconditionally. And once they feel safe enough to be who they are and grow, they'll also see your example. And that will optimize their probability of growth by you doing that. And because you're the most significant other in their life, then that makes this a rather large impact on them. So that's the, that's really, it's a good question because that, that the answer really tells us what we can do for other people. We can love them. We can care about them to the point that we set them free to fix themselves. We can't fix them. We can give them ideas, but we can't do it for them. And as much as we keep harping at them and say, you know, you've got this problem and you need to fix it. You know, you're this way and you're that way and that's no good. What that's doing is basically, you know, condemning them. It's telling them what's wrong with them. That makes them more insecure. That makes them feel more inept, more of a failure. And when you feel inept and not capable and a failure, that's not when you reach out, you know, stretch yourself out to, uh, you know, take ownership of this failed being. No, you, you bury all that stuff down. You get angry at the person that told you that you had problems and you hide it all and you go on, right? You put a steely, you know, wall around yourself and you deal that way. You only have the courage to tear that wall down when you're in a safe place.